0: Um, What are you thinking about right now? Shorts, heat, all sorts of stuff. Uh, What we think about life and what we think about what we think about is massively important, isn't it? You know, there's a little phrase saying, um, uh, the pen is mightier than the sword. Why is that? Well, what is it that mobilizes armies to go to war? Words. Okay, and where do words come from? Sorry? Thoughts. Uh, And thoughts are really a subcategory of our ideas. So how we think about the world, the ideas we have about the world uh, are massively, massively, massively important. Uh, one of the great problems in our society, it seems to me, is that we are no longer a culture that thinks particularly much, and we are not a culture and a people and a community who think about what we think about and why we think about that, right? Um, let me show you why. It's entirely predictable, uh, and it leads to all kinds of unhelpful uh, manipulations and dysfunctions and unintended consequences. And so the point of this morning is for each of us to think about the fact, think about, it's to change our minds and to start to understand how God wants to help us think about the world for our own good but then also for the good of our society and the renewal and the transformation of our culture, which is our mission as a church, to work with God, to renew this world that we're in with God and God's renewing work and God's transformation and god the change that you and I want to bring about is going to happen uh, very centrally in the area of our minds and what we think so, I'm going to recover some ground we looked at last week because I do recognize that some of you weren't here uh, last week. And this is really important material because it helps us understand how people uh, work and how we fit together. Uh, so,. Um, We'll post these online so you don't have to take notes. I see you all frantically taking notes because uh, it seems like you're at a lecture. And uh, you really are. There are We need to understand, if we're going to understand how, we, how our minds are changed and the role of our thoughts in the shaping of the world, we need to understand the constituent parts of the human reality. So we have human beings, phenomenologically, can be understood as comprising of uh, really five... Uh, different components, six if or uh, five different components. Our hearts, which as we looked at last week, uh, the component of the self that chooses, the, the will, the spirit, the decision-making part, shapes our character, the CEO of our being. Our minds, which comprise of our thoughts and our feelings. And uh, sensations, emotions uh, are, comprise our f- feeling and then our thinking as images, concepts, judgments, inferences. Our bodies, we all have bodies through which we behave, and the bodies are our only means of interaction with the physical world. Uh, we, are in a, we are made up of our relationships with people, um, personal and structural relationships with others, and we have souls, and this is a... Uh, Complex uh, concept at one level, but the soul is the, the, the self as the integrated whole, the factor that integrates all of the above to form one life. So when we talk about, um, us as souls. We're really talking about us as the whole being of heart, mind, body in a web of relationships with other persons integrated together. So that's where you can save a soul or you can lose a soul. It's really talking about that whole being. Now, if that's the case, if you remember from last week, the point I made was in a system, it's very important to understand how all the different parts relate to each other, right? Um, i uh, uh, When I was a kid growing up in Africa, I had a bicycle um, and uh, I had to kind of maintain the bike myself now i didn 't have a dad around to show me how to do it, so I, it was a, and we didn 't have YouTube in those days, so it was very much a you know find your own adventure, fix your bike uh, and and i I very clearly remember changing the bearings on the back wheel and the front wheel and grease and blah, blah, blah. And when I put it all back together, there was, there, was, there was a washer and a couple of bearings still floating around on the ground. And I'm like, hmm, I don't think I've got everything in quite the order they should be in. And no surprise, the bike didn't work particularly well, and uh, I needed some help as a kid to try and fix my bike. The question is, how do we order these parts? And I want to suggest to you this idea that there are really only two uh, principles or forces that will order uh, and coordinate the parts of our lives, and they are the principles of love or desire. And these principles are often confused, right? So... um Uh, This is one way in which desire orders life. And desire is confused from love in the following way. Desire is really about my desire to have, possess, consume, X, Y, or Z... Uh, It's not the same as love. We get it confused. Love is about willing and acting towards the good of the other. So, for example, we might say, uh, Michelle England is doing morning tea this morning, and I just went out there to get a glass of water, and I love the food that she has prepared. Only I don't, because guess what's going to happen to that food? I'm going to eat it. Now, that's not good for the food. You know, the pig that died to make the ham that's out there, the salmon that was hooked in to go... I'm, I desire the food strongly, particularly because I haven't had breakfast. I desire the food, but I don't love it. And we get really, really confused in our culture. We don't draw a distinction. So uh, this is how a self, uh, from, the pers- from God's perspective, but I also think anyone who really clearly thinks about the ordering of the self we'll understand how a self is ruled by desires and actually the greek word there's this really interesting word in uh, the bible uses to talk about desires it's epithumia ruling desires you'll see it you'll see it right through scripture once your eyes are open to it and in this model what tends to go wrong is the self the desires of the self rules our lives the fundamental organizing principle the authority in our world is the self and therefore the self getting our desires met, uh, this happens fundamentally in the location of our bodies. So that's why in Romans 8, when Paul says, we, those who live, uh, that you can live according to the desires of the flesh. That's what the, that's what the Bible writers mean. That, that the desires that we have, our epiphany are located in the context of our body and our lives are driven by these. Uh, our bodies, our, uh, direct our souls to organize and integrate all the rest of our lives in order to get our desires met. So, uh, I think and I feel about how I can get my desires met. What I'm looking for is always driven by my epithumia, my desires. And then my heart chooses those actions that I think and I feel will lead to my desires being met. And typically what happens then is I... Uh, I organize the actions of my body in order to use people to get my desires met. And at the very bottom of this chain of command, we find God. When we've exhausted every other possibility for meeting our needs, we turn to God. Hence the uh, phrase, there is no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole, right? Right? It's a little aphorism to try and say, when every other opportunity or option for you and I to have our desires met, in this instance, in a foxhole, the desire to live, when that, when every other opportunity is, has, is no longer there, we turn to God as the uh, being of last resort. Uh, you can be very religious and, do, and live this way, right? <laughs> religious people often just use religion and morality and God In this fundamental exercise of living for self, trying to prove the self, trying to make the self work. Uh, This life lived for the self, ruled by desire. Is there another way? I hear you ask. And we're going to get to our thought life in a moment. But this is important. This is the other vision of life that Jesus presents to us. And again, we need to make a decision whether we think Jesus really was the smartest person who ever lived who really understood the way the world works. If we think that is the case, then this is how he suggests we should live for our own good and the good of the world. And that is that the fundamental principle should be that everything gets drawn under a life lived for Jesus and ruled not by desire but by what? By love. Because what does Jesus say is the organizing principle of a life lived with God, and what is the very essence of God himself? It's love, isn't it? So God is love, and Jesus says if you're going to live in God, you've got to love God with the totality of your being, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. So a life of love is a life lived for Jesus, ruled by love, where I want to please God in everything I do, with everything that I am, and I want only what is good for others. So, my heart is submitted, my will comes under the gracious rule of Jesus. I only want what God wants. That'd be pretty neat, wouldn't it? Imagine that. Imagine if everyone only ever wanted what God wanted, right? Imagine, this is a little aside, imagine not having any problematic wants. Don't you have lots of problematic wants? I have lots of problematic wants for more money. For more comfort, for more recognition, for revenge, you name it? I have all these but in God 's rule, his plan is for us not to have any of those, and that's possible that you and I can become people who only ever want what Jesus wants. Wow, that'd be pretty cool. And then our minds are directed by our hearts, which only want what God wants. Our minds are directed only to think and feel those things that God wants us to think about and feel. Uh, And that's what we're going to look at. And then our minds direct our souls to organize our body so that everything we have is presented to God as an instrument of righteousness, Paul says in Romans, to be used as an instrument to love other people. And where does the self fit in all of that? Well, the self finds its life as all of the rest of its being is integrated under God. That's what Jesus means, presumably, when he says to us, if anyone wants to follow me, they need to what? Those of you who've been in Sunday school a long time, what's that? Deny themselves, take up their cross. That's to deny yourself means to say, in the ordering of my life, I'm going to put what God wants, the rule of Jesus, first. I'm going to integrate every bit of my life in the rule of Jesus. And of course, you know what you find, don't you? Is that that's actually the way that we flourish as human beings. That is what makes us happiest, paradoxically. (laughs) That is what's best for us and for society. So, um, you've all been around Sydney a while. You've probably seen the little tract, Two Ways to Live over the years. I have a slightly better version of it, Um, (laughs) or a different version. Here it is, right? The choice you and I have, moment by moment, day by day, is how are we going to live? Are we going to live under the gracious rule of love, or are we going to live under the rule and control of epithumia, of desire? Um very interesting. I'm, I'm reading a great book called The End of Liberalism by a, a brilliant uh, philosopher of political science from the University of uh, uh, Notre Dame in the U.S. And uh, fascinating to see when you look at the 400-year uh, the project of liberalism, uh, it results in... It's, it's an, an attempt to say, how do we set the self free from every other constraint to be the autonomous choosing self. So but of course the problem with that, this book argues very cogently, is when all you've got is life ruled by desire and and each individual person's desire and freedom of choice and the ultimate expression of humanity is you or me being free from all external constraints to choose what I want. That's that's the heart of the liberal project Produced some enormous goods, but you know where it ends up? It ends up with uh, with the own with with a radical uh, freedom of the individual to choose what they want, but that radical freedom has to be constrained by what by an increasingly tyrannical overreaching state so where before under the rule of God, when a whole community understood that we were all submitted to the rule of God under love, that's what limited our choices. That's what shaped our hearts. That's what shaped how we related to each other. But when you have a whole 400-year intellectual project to live as unconstrained, unfettered, autonomous-choosing beings under the rule of your epithemia, the only way to limit evil is, is an ever-expanding state, which is what we have. And the great dilemma, and, uh, and I, I trade gently on this, because uh, if you follow me on Facebook, you'll notice the, uh, you know, occasionally I post stuff on Facebook and there's a big flare up. You see this in the area of how women and men relate to each other around the hashtag me Too campaign. Which in one, in, at one level, you want to affirm and applaud and say, that's exactly right. But the confusion, of uh, of the way women and men relate to each other is when you have 400 years that say all that really matters is your desires... And you've removed the possibility that God and the institutions God gives us, like scriptures and the church and community, might internally shape to form our characters so that my desires don't actually oppress and abuse you. When all of that is dismantled by 400 years of liberalism, all you're left with is the state. So now what happens is you need to legislate. Every second of every interaction of what does consent look like? There is nothing left. I'm a completely free autonomous being, but what I realize is that causes (laughs) enormous problems because I end up hurting people and you end up hurting people. So what are we left with? More and more legislation. More and more surveillance. Because how are you going to know what really happened? Well, you put cameras everywhere so you can wind back and you can see and then the state can tell you how to live because we're just a bunch of free... And so it's a mess. I mean, we've made liberalism has made some great advances, but as a, as a community of Christian people, we actually present a vastly different vision of human life than liberal autonomy ruled by the self and then constrained by an ever-increasingly tyrannical state. We have a vision of a self lived under God <sighs> now here's the question do you think that is true <laughs> do you think that what I've just presented to you is true that, because that's massively important what do you think about what do you and I think about the nature of the world and how the world works Here is, um, you know, here is how Paul puts it in Romans. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. That's what happens. We think about that all the time. And our feelings are driven by that. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And then... uh, Paul makes this really interesting comment, which you've got to work out is true. The mind governed by flesh is death, but the mind, do you see this? The mind governed or ruled by flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Uh, We live in a world where lives are governed by the flesh, and so we see around us death, spiritual death everywhere. I was speaking to the uh, uh, deputy head of one of our elite private schools during the week. And in their senior college, so years 10, 11, and 12, last year, they had five kids on suicide watch. When you speak to anyone who's working with young people today, uh, and those of us with, with teenagers ourselves, or if your grandkids are in that space, you'll know that we live uh, in a culture that is death, anxiety, depression, mental illness, abuse, what the what the French philosophers call anomie, a, a just a loss of meaning, a, a lostness. All kinds of toxic, dysfunctional, selfish, manipulative, bullying behavior. <laughs> We just see it as teenagers because they're, no not, they're not yet as sophisticated as we are as adults in managing it and hiding it. Uh, but this is what happens. Y- is your mind, how I think about the world, governed by the spirit? Or is it governed by the flesh? And the one way is life, the other way is death. Uh, here's a thought. I don't know if you think it's true. But when you think about our nature as human beings, the ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what we will let our minds dwell upon. Isn't that interesting? Like that's, at the very core, what do, we, what do you think about? And what do you think about what you think about? What do you dwell on? That's the very essence of us, right? So do we think about God and his beauty? And how wonderful he is, or do we just think about how we can get ahead? We're free. Now we recognise that in the world. If any of you have ever been to, into counselling, m- chances are pretty high you've had some form of cognitive behavioural therapy, right? Uh, or uh, and, and you, if you're, if you know someone who's got uh, you know um, personality disorder of some sort, it might be dialectical behavioural therapy. Uh, what we've recognized as a culture is, do you know, what it's—it is possible to change how we feel and how we function by changing what we think about. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Um, you can—it it affects how we how we relate to people. If you want, I'll give you a here's a two-minute tip on how to improve your marriage if you're married. What do you reckon that might be? When you think about your spouse choose to think about whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable in them. Don't think about all the stuff that drives you nuts. There's plenty of that. In fact, the research, a guy called John Gottman says there's in, in, in 40 years of marriage research looking at very healthy, successful couples and dysfunctional ones on the path to divorce, he says there's five to seven things in your life partner that are going to drive you nuts and they're never going to change. <laughs> never. Do you know what successful couples do? Is they figure out how to work around those unchangeable, annoying bits. <laughs> Just think about what's wonderful and glorious in your partner. That'll change, right? And, and here's an action you should take. I think I've mentioned this before, but here's the other bit of of evidence based. Uh, here's an evidence based marriage tip: When you leave your house in the morning, give your partner a six second kiss. Not four, not two minutes, unless you can delay going to work for a bit um, and the kids aren't in the house. Uh, let the reader understand. Um, not two, six seconds. And guess what? When you come back at night, what should you do? Greet them with another six-second kiss. It's very hard to kiss someone for six seconds when all you're thinking about is how annoying they are, how stupid they are, how they've hurt you. How we think about someone affects how we feel about them, doesn't it? When you start, you know, and of course how we feel about someone affects how we think about them, affects everything. I've been reading a book um, uh, called Poor Charlie's Almanac. It's a collection of speeches from a guy called Charlie Munger who is uh, Warren Buffett's partner in Berkshire Hathaway, one of the most successful investors uh, of the last century. and, And Charlie is a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I've learned an enormous amount about life just reading this book uh, over the last week or two. But he says he talks about envy in financial services and wealth. So he's a, he's a billionaire, um, but he's, you know, there's, he says there's always people who are going to be richer than you. Uh, if you choose to focus on envy and on the fact that they're getting richer than you, you'll never be happy. And you'll make a whole bunch of really dumb investment decisions. Just choose what you think about. Great clarity, and he listed off a bunch of examples of people who, you know, um, chose to think about how others were getting ahead at various times in various asset bubbles, say in the, you know, um, tech bubble in the late nineties, or in the, you know, um, mortgage in the the mortgage cri- mortgage bubble in the lead up to the financial crisis in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and he said. It's always unhelpful. He says, why would you, why would you get on the wagon of envy? <laughs> it's never going to take you any place good. And he says, and it's the one sin that gives you no pleasure anyway. So if you're going to sin, you might as well choose one that gives you some pleasure, uh, which is not what I'm. <laughs> that's Charlie Munger. That's not Jesus, but I just thought it was such a good line. I had to throw it in. Choose what you think about. Choose what you think about. It shapes everything. And this is what Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. One of the big challenges that we face, though, as a culture is around, and, uh, is around this concept of truth. We are very confused. So when we say to someone, think about what is true, part of the problem in our culture is we don't know what is true and we don't actually even believe very often that there is such a thing as truth. So postmodern late Marxist thought basically says all truth claims are an exercise in power. There is no such thing as truth. It's just preferences and choices that the powerful will use to exploit the weak. That is, uh, that is an immensely powerful idea circulating in our world at the moment. And what we need to do, though, is understand that it's, in the words of Charlie, Charlie Munger has, in the words of Charlie Munger, that idea is just bonkers. For one, it's self-defeating because it's a claim to ultimate truth. It's a claim to describe the way the world works and in so doing say that it itself doesn't exist. If that claim is true, then that claim can't be true. Make sense? bit hard for a Sunday morning. We've got to know what truth is, know what is true, and truth is correspondence to reality. This is what it is. It's very simple. But this is a simple concept that we as Christian people, as followers of Jesus, need to say this is how God sees the world. This is how Jesus sees the world. This is the major philosophical battle underlying the cultural crisis we are facing in the Western world today. Truth exists and truth is about correspondence to reality. We cannot simply construct whatever ideas we like and impose those on reality. That's late postmodern Marxism that we see in all around us. And so we are unashamedly as people who take Jesus seriously, Fighting a battle at the level of ideas and why ideas matter is because ideas that are out of step with reality ideas that lead to us being ruled by the self end up really hurting people the ideas that we find in the Bible end up creating a community of love and human flourishing so it's worth fighting for those ideas and by fighting I don't mean being a militant bigoted troll online It's enough of those. We don't need more of them. It means saying we love. But we have to understand this. You see, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. Right? Reality is what you run into when you're wrong. So the path of life, our distinctive vision as Christian people is to say to a world that we are in a relationship with a creator who is nothing but love, who has revealed himself in time and space to to heal and restore this broken reality and who now is present with us to guide us from the inside out so that we can live in accordance with the way the world really is so that we can live forever in a way that brings about the very best for us and for everybody else. That's the essence of the Christian claim, isn't it? And it's profound. Do you know that uh, you and I have the capacity that that not only, this is what makes Christianity different. It's not just that God says, here's the way the world is," is, which would be great. He says something even more profound. He says, I will put my mind inside of you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, in the middle of a very complicated ethical discussion and division in the church, he says, But who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Talking about conflict in the church. And then he, he throws this little line in that is extraordinary. But we have the mind of Christ. We do. Do, do, do you really think about yourself? Do you have the mind of Christ? That you can understand the world in the way of Jesus, and think about the world in the way of Jesus, and then you can feel about the world, you can value uh, and feel about the world in the way of Jesus. That's really important, isn't it? You see, if I have the mind of Christ, then then what I find, what I judge to be uh, compelling and beautiful and, tr- and attractive and good, what I am attracted to will be what Jesus is attracted to. And what I judge to be evil and off-putting and repulsive will be the things that Jesus regards as evil and off-putting and repulsive, and I'll be repelled by those things. So, Jesus says an excess of wealth is something uh, that, it, when it's an excess of wealth ordered around uh, selfishness, is actually is something we should feel really bad about. We should be repelled by it. Shouldn't we? If we feel about wealth the way Jesus feels about wealth, I mean, that's a challenging thought, right? And we should feel immensely drawn to radical generosity in ourselves, uh, more so than in others. (laughs) I find it quite easy to be drawn to generosity in others. That's a wonderful virtue. (laughs) In myself, I prefer greed. Um, No... When I have the mind of Christ. So the question is, how do you get the mind of Christ? Good question, right? Let me back up a little bit and suggest to you right now, you have a little bit of the mind of Mark inside of you. Those of you who've been listening and paying attention, why, how have you got the mind of Mark inside of you? Sorry? The good bits? The good bits? <laughs> You've got the good bits of the mind of Mark. Well, now, how has the mind of Mark got inside of you? Because you're listening to my words. So this is this is how words work, right? Words, as I say this stuff and you listen, actually there is this amazing thing that happens that what I'm saying now is changing how you think and feel. You might be thinking... Uh, I liked this church uh, before Mark told me I should hate wealth. Now I don't. <laughs> you might be thinking, I like Mark right up until the point uh, you know, that he told me that being greedy was not good. Or whatever it is. Or you might be, you, you know, you've got a bit of my mind inside of you. I've tried to help you understand this whole vista of uh, the last 400 years of intellectual history. How do we get the mind of Christ? The Bible. God's Word. That's at the very essence of everything I've tried to do is here. This is how you get the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ says you can have the mind of Christ. That's what God says to us. So we, we need to read it. We need to understand uh, the Scriptures. The primary discipline for spiritual formation and becoming people who can actually Live well in accord with reality is to have the mind of Christ and the way we have the mind of Christ is by internalizing Scripture. That's it, right? Now it doesn't mean and so there's a whole complicated thing around that. what that looks like, what that means. But that's why we read the Bible so that the mind of Christ can shape everything we do, how we feel. That's why the Word of God is central to to what we do on a Sunday and in our small groups. We're about to kick off uh, small groups again this year. and um, the, the major point of our small groups is they become places of spiritual formation where the Word of God takes r- root in our minds and we, in a small group, think about what that looks like and help each other live it out. Because here's the thing. Adult behavior change is extraordinarily hard, right? Isn't it? I don't know about you. I find it so hard. So I can, oh, I've got all these ideas, now I'm gonna go live for Jesus. But as Paul says, in another place in Romans, he says, but we carry around in us this body of sin and death. So you know what? Uh, I need people around me because I, I wanna live this way, but I carry around in me a body that just, just has this tendency, I don't wanna live this way. And I just, I've got these habits and just these desires that just come to the surface. And the point of church, is to shape us so that more and more we live that way. See, gotta be in a small group because what I'm doing now is, you know, helpful. I'm trying to explain scripture, trying to show the implications of it. But it's very limited in its impact. Like, this is a, this is just like standing there with a fire hydrant, just spraying God, spraying truth everywhere and hoping it sticks. In a small group, you, it's like chinese water torture you drip the truth on you until you can't you can't take it anymore it's, you just you're chained because you have people who love you and they're on the same journey with you and you're open and you're honest and you're vulnerable and you grapple with what does it actually mean to have the mind of christ guiding and shaping every part of my life that's why we think uh, in this church that being in a small community is really really important and then, you know, read the Bible yourself, personal devotional reading. I don't know if you've ever tried reading the whole Bible in a year. If you've tried that and you failed and you feel disheartened by it, don't do it. Like That's a dumb thing to do if you think it's going to keep making you miserable. But here's what you can do. Take one verse that has one idea and internalize that and let that one verse change you. If you, if you get one idea from God, and you actually let that permeate into your being and shape your behavior, that's better than having your eyes glance over the entire text of Scripture. That's, and I'm not knocking reading the whole Bible in a year. I do it regularly. Uh, it was easier when the kids were little, and I could do it in a kid's Bible. I could knock it off in about 15 minutes that way. Um, that was pretty good. Uh, And I've read the whole Bible in a year. I've read it in Hebrew. I've read it in Greek. But you know what I find the biggest challenge for me is? To hear from God one idea today that is actually going to make a difference. I'm actually going to obey. I'm actually going to do. So just do that. If you want to read the whole Bible, that is awesome. But if all that's too much, just find one verse with one powerful idea and get that into your heart and your soul and into your behavior. And then when you figured out that, do the next one. Start with 15 seconds of reading and grow from there. See what happens, right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you uh, make available to us your mind so that we can think and feel about the world the way you do. That our lives can be integrated, can be transformed under your gracious rule. And I pray for each of us in this room that that maybe just one idea, one word from you this morning will take root in our minds and so transform our lives this morning. May we be a people, a community, who gladly lay ourselves down and find our life in you. And as we do that, Lord, may we, may we serve as salt and light in this world. May, may we be a community that shows how wonderful and extraordinary and good it is to be ruled by love. And may we increasingly see a city and a nation that is ruled by love. And we ask all of this in the name of the one who is love himself, Jesus Christ. Amen.